invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians uh, chapter 1, and I'll be there after a little while. I got to tell you, my, my mind and, and heart are really kind of a mess this morning. Uh, this thing that continues to kind of swirl around us called Las Vegas and the massacre, uh, it is unsettling. Yeah, it seems like we are watching our society set new records all the time. Just a little while ago, the record for the most people killed was 49 in Florida. And now we've set a new record. It's not the kind of record that any society wants to set. And so because of who we are as Christ followers, and in my case particularly because of who I am as a, well, I don't really know what I am. I'm Barry's friend. That's what I am. I get asked a lot, Last, yesterday I was on the radio for an hour being asked and answering questions with regard to where's God and why is our society evil and all these things. And I don't know all the answers. I have some theological systems that help me make sense of certain things. But I do know where it started. It started back in the book of Genesis. You don't have to turn there, but you remember what happened that Satan beguiled Adam and Eve into rejecting submission to the rule of God. By the way, every song we sang this morning had to do with God's, God the Son's kingship and his rule, thou ruler of all, right? He's the king, he's the coming king. He reigns now and we are waiting for him to come to consummate the kingdom. And it started in the Garden of Eden where God said, look, you don't have to worry about anything. All you have to do is obey me. You don't have to think for yourself. All you have to do is do what I tell you. Don't eat from that tree. And then Satan came and said, it's okay, eat from that tree. And what he seduced them into understanding is that if they ate from that tree, they could become their own standard. We call that self-sufficiency, self-lordship. And so when sin comes into the world, God starts passing out the curses, right? And he, he passes them out in the ordinance of, order of appearance. And the first one is to Satan. And in Genesis 3, 15, he says, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I get this part. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And usually at this point in this text we hit right to the he. That, that God is not going to let sin win. That he already has a plan to fix what sin has broken and it revolves around a male pronoun, a he. And the whole Old Testament perhaps can be summarized in some ways as the search for who that he's going to be. And so we too soon pass over the phrase, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Enmity. It's a very simple little Hebrew word. It means personal hostility. And it isn't just between one seed and another. It's, it's really between those who are going to submit to the rule of God and those who want to be lords of self. Self-sufficient, self-dependent, self-driven. That enmity is, I think, responsible. It came into this world and it's responsible for, for everything that we see that starts with anger, with hostility, with opposition. Uh, you look around at racial division, which is greater today than perhaps at any other time in my life, at least overtly. And there's division amongst people. There's 
the division amongst races, amongst genders. But it all boils down to this. Are we committed to the lordship of God or are we being ruled by self? Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, you have to what? You have to deny yourself. Now, fortunately, that doesn't mean you have to give up ice cream or any of that kind of stuff. Right? By the way, I was in Hotchkiss Lower Back, too. Must be the place. But what it does mean is you have to give up the right to rule yourself. You have to constantly bend your will to follow God's will. In John 15, he said, you know what, you abide in me if you keep my commandments. The enmity is between that position and the position of self-determination or what we just might call selfishness or even simpler, I want my way. It comes down to this, the enmity begins and is seen in this, either I want to go God's way or I want my way. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do, right? That's what Psalm 2 is about. It says all the kings and the rulers of the earth are shaking their fist at God and saying we want to sever the bonds that you have on us. We want to be free of restraint, free of moral restraint, free of every kind of restraint. And that happens in the Garden of Eden when sin enters in. And so we see this enmity that God has placed as a result of the sin in all of its different facets. But I don't want to talk about the problem of evil in the world. I want to talk about the problem of evil in the church. Uh, Because it boils down to the same thing. I want my way. I want worship to be my way. I want God to be my way. Because here's the, here's the sad, sad truth that even those of us who according to Romans 5 have been justified by faith and have peace with God, there is still, isn't, it, isn't there, there's, there's still the, the, the vestiges, that's a good old Puritan word, there are still the remnants of that enmity in our as yet unredeemed flesh. And they rise up. And they rise up in my life and they rise up in your life and they try to get us to go our own way and say, I know God wants this, but this is what I feel like doing. This is what I feel like believing. This is how I feel like running my life. You know, the Apostle Paul talks against that all the time. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, don't turn there, you're still in Ephesians. I'll be there in a minute. He says, for the love of Christ controls us, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. Having concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all died, that's the believers, we've died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died on their, for their sake. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. What he's saying is that who we are in Christ now becomes the most important thing about us, and guess what? The most important thing about everyone else who is in Christ. We're new creatures. Now we don't look at each other and, and label, or we shouldn't, or treat one another as we see them in the flesh. And you could extrapolate that into all kinds of things. You see, God says the more we understand and lean into and, and are driven by our identity in Christ, the more we will be able to cage and control the remnants of enmity in our unredeemed flesh. But the opposite is also true. The less we understand the gospel, 
And I'm not just talking about, you know, four little statements as an advertisement for Team Jesus. I'm not talking about the gospel as some uh, homogenized, you know, evaporated down to four little things that you have to believe. I'm talking about the entire story of God's wonderful redemptive plan that he started before time, he's working out in time, and will complete and carry out after time is over into eternity, and we get to be part of that. And the level to which that identifies who we are and shapes our attitudes and shapes our vision and shapes our love, the level to which that is true is going to be, uh, it's going to be the thing that keeps those seeds of enmity and hatred and prejudice and selfishness at bay. And now we're at Ephesians. Because I think Ephesians is a test case for this. What we have in Ephesians is Paul imploring his readers to overcome centuries of racial and cultural hatred. Now we're going to do a little, uh, little very slow little walk through not all the book. I don't have quite that time. Barry took up too much of my time. I'm kidding. You got done on time. It's 9.29. Nice job. Well, I want you to start in chapter 1, and I want to show you something that I didn't discover until about the third time I tried to preach to this great book, and it had everything to do with pronouns. So you English majors, here you go. He says, verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says, I want to tell you about God our Father. I want to tell you how blessed he is, and you know if you've studied this in the original, this is one great big run-on sentence with only one main verb, blessed, and a bunch of participles that unpack it. But I don't, I don't care about any of those this morning. I care about the pronouns. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed, help me out here, us. Verse four, even as he chose us down a ways that we should be holy. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us. In him we. Verse 8, which he lavished upon us. 9, making known to us. I don't know how you read that, but we usually think that's me. Notice what happens. Verse 11, in him we. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then what happens in verse 13? In him, oh my goodness, you. And suddenly it dawns on us, if we're really, really reading this well, that there's the weans and the usins, and then there's the youans. And he carries that through. When you heard the word of the truth and the gospel of your salvation, verse 14, it was the guarantee of our inheritance until we Ooh, we came in again. Verse 15, heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love. Verse 16, remembering you. 17, may give you the spirit of wisdom. 18, having the eyes of your heart. You get the point? Who are they? Who are the Ewans and who are the Weans? Verse 11 of chapter 2, Paul tells us. He says, therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles, there it is, so he's saying there are the weans, and that's Paul, that would say the Jews. There's us. God has done all these things for us. He's predestined us. He's called us. He lavished grace on us. Uh, and guess what? He's also 
done it for you, you Gentiles. In the flesh, called uncircumcision. Notice what happens in verse 12 of chapter 2. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But it's even worse than that, if it could be. The Gentiles and the Jews hated each other. I mean, if you want to understand the history of racial and cultural just hostility and opposition. I mean, the Jews thought of the Gentiles as dogs, right? Dogs. Uh, and the Gentiles looked at the Jews and said, you guys are haughty, you're arrogant. And both groups were right. The Gentiles had no, no care for the things of God, no care for the rule of God. The Jews had the rule of God, but in many cases they chose to use the rule of God to mask their own selfishness and their self-driven ways. And so there's this enmity. There's this hatred. And then God does the unthinkable. He saves them and puts them in the same church. My goodness. Look how he did it. In verse 13 of chapter 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14 is an amazing verse. For he himself is our peace. You know what the opposite of enmity is? Peace. The opposite of me hating you and you hating me and there being hostility and antagonism and spite and disdain, the opposite of that, even if it's never worked out, is this idea of peace, that there is not only the cessation of hostility, but there is a balance, there is a sense in which our lives come together to make one another what we could never be alone. He made himself, he made our peace. He made us both one. Now, if you're like me, that has echoes, doesn't it, back to John 17 where Jesus prayed, you know, Lord, may they be one as we are one. And this unity that we are to have is not just visible unity, it's built on the premise that the intra-Trinitarian unity of the three members of the one Godhead is an essential unity. And so he says, he has made us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of, here it is, hostility. Wow. What's the end result? That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, there it is, there's the weans and the, the ewans now have access to one spirit, in one spirit to the Father. So you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and you know. The rest of this. Verse 22, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Why? Down to verse 6 of chapter 3. Because Paul was the one to whom it was given the privilege of proclaiming this amazing mystery, this truth that is revealed in the New Testament fully, nuanced in the Old Testament, and it's this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Now those are words that were used of the Jewish people. Members of the same body. 
partakers of the promise in Messiah Jesus through the gospel. There it is. And what Paul says in Corinthians, that if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creature, and we don't view them anymore in the flesh. He says, and we've been given this great ministry of, of peacemaking, of reconciliation. And so we have to ask ourselves, how in the world does God expect that Gentiles who have their own ways, their own customs, their own culture, their own self-determinating rules are ever going to get along with the Jewish people who also have a completely different set and who view the, the Gentiles as dogs, as idolaters, as pagans, and the Gentiles view the Jews as arrogant, uppity, without cause. How's it going to happen? Well, it, it's all about understanding what the gospel really does for us. And I just want you to flip back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Maybe the best known passage in the book of Ephesians. And we're all used to it. Uh, we have some rams in the audience today. Reformed angry men, right? Who will find Dr. Calvin behind every bush. And, um, and in my mind, he's usually there. But we don't have to point him out, okay? And when I announce Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, you're immediately going to go, oh, we're going to pound the depravity of God. And we're going to pound that it's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. And that's all here, but that's not Paul's point. That's what we all do. But if you ask yourself, why did God save me? You're going to find yourself with two possibilities. He saved me for me. He saved me so I could be forgiven, so I could have life eternal, so I could have fellowship with him. And here's one of the great problems in evangelicalism is that we have made salvation so personal. And it really comes out of those times in, uh, in our history as Christians, especially in America, where people were part of a denomination. And you know, they signed up, they got on the rolls, they maybe went once in a while. And so pastors, bless you, um, <laughs> pastors came up with what was right to do at that point. They said, you know, it's not enough to be part of a church. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And at the point that they said that, that was, that was good. It was a corrective. But here's the problem with it. In our me-centered, self-lordship world, even believers have taken that personal relationship with Christ and made the answer to the question, why did God save me? He saved me for me. He saved me for me. And so he's, he not only is my savior, but now he's my life coach and he's gonna help me make better decisions. He's gonna make sure my life is pain-free because if I ever hit suffering, I'm gonna wonder, well, God, why'd you do that? You know, I signed up. I believe in you. I, I go to church the bottom line is we're wrong. Yes, there are great personal benefits to being in Christ. But Paul's going to point out God didn't save you for you. He saved you for him. And that makes all the difference. So let's walk through this. There's a great five-point outline here if you need outlines. Verses one through three, what we were. 
And very simple, we were dead in sin. But notice the Ewans and the Weans show up again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul's saying, look, you Gentiles, we all know you guys are rotten. Uh, you get, you're dead in sins. You're walking dead people. You're spiritually you know, despondent, you're dis- depraved. You are following the prince of the power of the air, not giving yourself to the rule of God, but you are submitted to the rule of self. And then he says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So he's saying we Jews have, have no better pit from which we were dug than you guys. We're carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. That's selfishness. And we're by nature children of wrath. I take that to mean that by nature both Jew and Gentile are headed for the wrath of God unless the trajectory of their lives changes. In this case, unless that which is dead is made alive. And so we get to verse 4. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher in England, said that these are the two best words in the Bible, but God. And it, it goes back to Genesis 3. It says, God said, look, I know sin came in. I'm not going to let God win, or not going to let sin win. I have this plan through the he. Until the he comes and fully consummates his kingdom, there's going to be this enmity. But he's going to save some, and as he saves them, he's going to progressively work out himself in them so that their identity in Christ puts to death more and more the seeds of enmity that are in our unredeemed flesh. But Paul wants us all to know that's where we all started, but God. Being rich in mercy. So if verses 1 through 3 is what we were, dead in sin, verses 4 through 6 is what God did. He made us alive. But God, being rich in mercy, being of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he, he gives us a hint of what's coming next. By grace you've been saved. But he not only made us alive, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The term heavenly places is used uh, four or five times in Ephesians and always speaks about a spiritual reality. That right now we are already reconnected with God. We are dwelling with Christ. We are united with Christ. So who were we? We were dead in sin. What did God do? He made us alive. Well, the next question is, how did he do it? And we get that little nuanced in the, in the end of verse 5. By grace, you've been saved. Now, he unpacks that further in verse 8. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This faith, obviously the grace isn't yours. It would be redundant if the that referred to grace because grace can never come from you. It's a gift. So, it must be the faith. Even the faith that grasps the grace is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So what were we? Dead in sin. Do you realize that? Now some of you were, somebody asked me once, no it wasn't me, it was Dr. MacArthur. I heard him tell the story, I gotta be honest. Somebody asked him once, you've been a Christian all your life? He goes, not yet. <laughs> some of you say you've been Christians all your lives. Three, at three you were Gloriously converted. And yet, 
if that's true, and perhaps it is, but whenever we were brought to faith in Christ, we need to have a very clear vision of what he saved us from. And you need to make sure that these three verses, verses one through three, in some ways are tattooed on the inside of your eyelids so you never forget that what I have now is completely dependent on the love and the mercy of God who reached out to me. He did it out of his love and out of his mercy. He did it completely by his grace, not because of my works. So what were we dead in sin? What did God do? He made us alive. How did he do it? By grace through faith in Christ. Grace alone. Faith alone. And then we got to ask the big question, why did he do it? And that's where we, we kind of jump over a certain verse in this, in this chapter, in this section. It's kind of a hurdle. It's those verses, you know, you're reading along and suddenly you hit this verse and you have no idea what it means or why it's there, so you just jump over it. But many times, the hurdle is actually the point of the passage. And I think that's what we find in verse 7. And if, you, if you're good at studying the Bible, you learn little things like the words, so that point out a purpose so I was dead in sin he made me alive by grace through faith why verse 7 so that in the coming ages now it doesn't mean just then it means starting now and throughout the coming ages the reason God saved me is that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus now what's that mean well, I think you can insert one word without getting in trouble. God saved you so he could show off through you. He wants to show off the immeasurable riches of his kindness. He wants to show off his transformational power through you, and by the you, it's plural here. He's talking to the Ephesian Gentiles and some Jews who are having trouble getting along. And he says, here's the deal. God wants to show off through your love for one another that what he says about the gospel is true and what you proclaim about loving Christ is true, that when you find your identity in him, it is the only way to suppress and keep down the, the seeds, the, the evil seeds of the enmity that are sown in every heart and remain ready to be nurtured and watered by selfishness even in the hearts of believers until we are fully redeemed, until the down payment of the Spirit is met with the culmination of our redemption, the redemption of our bodies, Paul says. Now, how do I know that's, uh, that's the key to this? Because of the last verse. Because this is where Paul wants to go. He wants to say, look, God saved you. He didn't have to, but he did, and he saved you for a purpose, and it wasn't just for you. It was because he wanted to bring a bunch of us together, and we're in this place not by our works because, verse 10, we are his work. It's not our efforts that got us where we are. It's his effort because we are his show-off piece. We are his demonstration we're his model we're his the Greek word is poema which we get poem from and it, it really meant a a crafted intentional work of art by a master craftsman that he would get done with and he'd put up as a, a demonstration of how good he was 
says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus by the way this particular Greek word for created is only used of two things creation and Christians why because the heavens are declaring what the glory of God the universe even in its sin broken sin drenched uh, form still blares out that the beautiful design and the intelligence and the majesty and the power of its creator guess what you and I were created to demonstrate the glory of God in the way that we live in the way that we love in the way that we seek out ways in our personal lives to downsize the effect of the enmity that remains in us how by fully embracing and delighting in daily the identity we have in Christ because of the gospel. And he says, basically, for two words. We've been created in Christ Jesus, here it is, for good works. Now again, I know, you reformed angry men, you rams, you hate the word good works. Because you think, oh, we're getting Catholic here. No, it's not about your good works. It is. It's all about your good works. Jesus said, if you don't bear fruit, we're going to cut you off and throw you in the fire. But why do we do good works? For the purpose of obeying and glorifying our Savior. And so it gets to the place where we begin to see, God saved me, really not for me alone, but he saved me to be part of a people to be part of a group of people who get along even though they come from different backgrounds. They come from, oh, I'm going to get in so much trouble here, different political positions. Do you know that God's not a Republican? (laughs) I guarantee he's not a Democrat either, but that's a different (laughs) thing. But you know, Jesus was a liberal. Think about this. He fed 9,000 people for free. (laughs) And in Isaiah chapter 9, it says, when the Messiah comes of his government, there will be no end. (laughs) I just throw in a little humor to get you off my back for saying he's not a Republican. (laughs) But just let me go there a minute since I'm already on tape and in trouble. We want to have churches where someone who is a, an avowed liberal God-hater could enter in, be greeted, be smiled at, be loved. My hope is to always be a pastor of a church where everybody is welcomed, but those who persist in their sin and selfishness will not feel comfortable over time. You understand what I'm saying? We want them to be there. We want to be friends with them. If they're our neighbors, we want to reach out to them. We want to establish relationships. Because one thing we learned from the Apostle Paul is that nobody seems to be outside the reach of God's saving grace. And when we begin to think that someone is, you know what that is? That's those seeds of enmity that are rising up. It's because we've lost our our focus really on that fact that we were once 
alienated from God, hostile in mind, Colossians 1. You see, if we forget Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, if we forget the gospel, if we forget the pit, pit from which we were dug, they used to say, if we forget the majesty of God's redemptive action in our lives, and if we forget that he didn't just save us for personal benefit, that he saved us for him, and that one of the ways he demonstrates his glory is to bring people who would never, ever be together, but now love each other because of Christ. And Paul says in chapter 4 of Ephesians, he says in verse 3, we should be eager to maintain the, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He goes through the basis for it. This unity is not just visible unity. It's not just pack your, leave your theology at the door so we can, you know, go along to get along. He says, no, there's one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Those are all theological categories those are the pillars upon which this, this majestic palace of unity sits. So we're not, we're not just saying we're just going to you know, embrace everything and anyone so we can have some kind of visible unity. No, what it's saying is that where God has truly done a work of grace in a life, that's what makes the person the most important to us. And we no longer see anybody according to the flesh, but we see them as who they are in Christ. Well, what do we do with this thing in Las Vegas? You know, I've been asked, you know, where was God? And why does God allow? And, you know, there are certainly enough writings and notes on the problem of evil, and you can find them. Ask anybody in Theo 1 on Tuesday nights. We just went through it. But that's not really where our hearts should go. Our hearts should go to this Lord, how do I represent your solution to the enmity? How does the gospel that I have believed, how does it demonstrate itself uh, on the movie screen of my life? How does it call me to walk away from my own prejudices, my own selfishnesses, my own desire to make myself the center of the universe? How can I learn, Lord, from this terrible, terrible display of what happens when the seeds of enmity are given full reign in a heart? Because I've said, Lord, you've called me away from that. You've called me into something much better. I was asked to speak on something, how Christ thinks about something. And so what I'm going to leave you with is this is how Christ thinks about the gospel. He thinks it should change us and continually make us more and more like him. May that be our word today. Father, we thank you that you didn't let sin win. You didn't let it win in the garden and you didn't let it win in our lives. And yet, Lord, we, we openly confess that sometimes we allow it to win. We, we have a hard time denying our self-interest. Perhaps it's because we have a hard time fully delighting daily in the truth of the gospel of where we were and what you did and how you did it and why you did it and who we are now, your show-off piece. May that be the identity we love to live out. In Jesus' name.